Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to the Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, Managing Editor of Best Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys. We're pleased to have with us today attorneys Eric Harrison and Caitlin Lundquist from the law firm of Beth Fessel and Werbel in Edison, New Jersey. Eric serves as practice manager for the firm. He manages the firm's employment and civil rights litigation department and specializes in the defense of civil rights, employment, special education, insurance coverage, and general liability litigation. Caitlin Ludquist is a member of the firm's Employment and Civil Rights Practices Group. Her practice is concentrated in the areas of employment law, education law, public entity law, discrimination, and civil rights. We're very pleased to have you both with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Today's podcast discusses the Exhaustion Defense and the Disabilities and Education Act. And, Caitlin, we'll start with you. Why is it important for attorneys practicing in this area to be familiar with the recent case law relating to the Exhaustion Defense? Well, thanks for having us on the podcast today. Uh, Very happy to be here. I would say that as attorneys practicing in the areas of special education, disability discrimination, and civil rights in general, Uh, We need to be aware of the recent cases on exhaustion because the failure to exhaust administrative remedies is actually a jurisdictional defense that needs to be raised in the very early stages of litigation, ideally by way of a motion to dismiss in lieu of an answer. So in order to make sure that you're asserting uh, failure to exhaust defense in every case where it might be applicable, you need to be familiar with the various court decisions that have recently come out explaining that under the uh, Federal Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act, or the IDEA, that plaintiffs are required to exhaust their administrative remedies prior to filing suit in either federal or state court. If the IDEA statute could be capable of providing relief that would address the plaintiff's alleged injury, even if they're seeking relief that unquestionably cannot be obtained under the IDEA. So attorneys who practice in this area should really take the time to review the decisions that have been issued over the last several years to ensure that they have a good understanding of how the courts treat the failure to exhaust defense, especially because it's typically going to factor into your litigation strategy very early on in the process, usually immediately after the complaint's been filed and you're assessing the merits of filing a motion to dismiss. And what would you say is the most critical point of law articulated by the recent decisions on the exhaustion defense with respect to IDEA and disability discrimination claims? To expand a little bit more upon some of the points we just discussed, I think the most important takeaway from the recent cases that have discussed exhaustion is that plaintiffs can completely omit any mention of the IDEA statute from their complaint. They can actually forego an IDEA claim entirely, whether it's in an attempt to avoid the exhaustion requirement purposely or for any other reason, and the courts will still require them to exhaust their administrative remedies if the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act is capable of providing some type of relief that could address the harm that's being alleged by the plaintiff. And the courts have actually taken this approach even when the plaintiff is seeking some form of monetary damages, such as compensatory damages, which are not available under the IDEA. So just as an example, if the complaint alleges that the plaintiff has suffered a denial of or a reduction in appropriate special education services, or that a school district has even failed to properly identify a child as needing special education, The IDEA statute authorizes relief for that type of harm in the form of compensatory education, among various other types of remedies. But even if the plaintiffs say that they don't want that type of relief, and instead they're only demanding monetary damages, and they claim that's why they need to be in court, and they're not filing a petition with the agency, recently the courts have responded to that by holding that the IDEA 
prohibits plaintiffs from trying to essentially repackage their claims in order to circumvent the exhaustion requirement and that they must first pursue claims that could be addressed by the IDEA by filing a petition for due process in the administrative agency. Now, the specifics of that procedure are going to vary by state, but in New Jersey, we have the Office of Special Education within the New Jersey Department of Education, which will receive a due process petition and eventually will likely transmit it to the Office of Administrative Law, or the OAL, we call it, if it can't be resolved through mediation or if it's not dismissed early on for failing to meet basic pleading requirements. Now, for defense attorneys, what are the advantages of having a motion to dismiss granted based on the plaintiff's failure to exhaust administrative remedies? In terms of advantages you'll have if the motion to dismiss is granted, in New Jersey, uh, the plaintiff will be required to, as I said, file a petition for due process with the Office of Special Education, which will then ask the parties whether they want to participate in a mediation conference that's conducted by a mediator from the state agency, or alternatively, the parties can hold their own resolution session in an effort to try to come to an early settlement. If that's not successful in resolving the case, the Office of Special Ed will transmit it to the OAL on a pretty short time frame, and then the OAL, which is comprised of various administrative law judges or ALJs who have specialized technical experience in many different areas of administrative law, one of which is special education, the OAL will um, take jurisdiction at that time. And uh, the ALJs who provide over the special education cases are really very familiar with the recent developments in this area, both legally and educationally. And for that reason, they're often going to be better equipped to handle the due process hearing and reach a uh, well-reasoned and supported final decision that would then be subject to appeal in federal court. The ALJs are also often going to be able to use their expertise in special education and with students with disabilities to assist the parties in facilitating a reasonable settlement agreement, if that's a possibility, depending on the case. And uh, the whole administrative process also moves fairly quickly compared to litigation that's filed in state or federal court, usually within a period of a few months as opposed to the years of discovery that you might have if you were in court. So you get the uh, specialized expertise of the ALJs who have a lot of experience in this somewhat niche area of the law, and then you also get the benefits of the more expeditious administrative process in the Office of Special Education, the OAL, And that process builds in some opportunities for early settlement while also moving the case along pretty quickly in a matter of months as opposed to years. Finally, uh, another concern is that having a motion to dismiss granted will often decrease both parties' attorney's fees because the Office of Administrative Law will have a much more limited discovery process as opposed to being in state or federal court. And as a result, counsel fees on both sides are often going to be substantially lower than they would be if you were in court. So in light of the fact that the IDEA is a fee-shifting statute, the lack of a prolonged discovery process can reduce litigation costs for a defendant, both in terms of its own attorney's fees as well as the plaintiff's fees that it could be responsible for if it's not successful in a due process hearing. What kinds of arguments would you anticipate from plaintiffs in opposing an exhaustion defense, and how would you recommend that defense counsel respond to those? Typically, plaintiffs uh, may claim that they satisfy one of the exceptions to the exhaustion requirement, such as that the Office of Administrative Law is incapable of granting them relief or that pursuing their administrative remedies would be futile. The other exceptions are that all the issues in dispute are purely legal rather than factual or that requiring exhaustion would cause severe or irreparable harm. Because state and federal courts tend to move more slowly than the administrative process, The severe or irreparable harm argument usually can be challenged by pointing out that 
if the court requires the plaintiff to exhaust his administrative remedies as required under the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act, the alleged harm will be remedied much more quickly than if the parties are required to remain in court. Also, usually the uh, severe or irreparable harm being alleged is going to be speculative and not necessarily based on any facts, but instead based on an argument regarding what's appropriate for the child educationally. And that's, of course, an issue that an ALJ is required to rule on after a full due process hearing in the OAL. If the issues really are purely legal, it's true that there would be no point in holding a hearing, but an ALJ can handle this by deciding a motion for summary decision, which is like a summary judgment motion uh, filed in court, and the plaintiff would then have the right to appeal the outcome of the motion by filing a complaint in federal court. Usually there's going to be a dispute, though, as to whether a student has received a free and appropriate public education as required by the IDEA, which is a factual issue. So if that's the case, then the issues cannot be purely legal. If the issues are purely legal, though, the courts have held that exhaustion will not be required, so defense counsel should be making every effort to argue that the issues are not limited to pure legal questions. The utility argument and the argument that the OAL cannot grant relief are similar, And in response to these arguments, defense counsel can usually demonstrate that the OAL is, in fact, capable of granting appropriate relief under the IDEA that would sufficiently address the alleged harm. You can also, again, argue that the plaintiff is simply speculating as to whether an ALJ will be likely to grant the request of relief after holding a full due process hearing and applying the legal standard to the facts, as opposed to being able to establish that an ALJ is incapable of granting relief or that pursuing administrative remedies would be futile. So defense counsel should emphasize that plaintiffs can't get around the exhaustion requirement simply by claiming that the administrative process wouldn't be able to achieve all of the relief they're seeking, such as monetary damages, compensatory damages, or that it would take too long to complete the due process or anything of that nature. And in making these arguments, defense counsel should also rely on the recent case law stating that uh, plaintiffs must exhaust administrative remedies if the IDEA is in any way capable of providing relief that would remedy the harm that they allege was caused by the defendant. Okay, thank you very much, Caitlin. Uh, Eric, what are the risk management implications of this issue? Well, there are different forms of coverage that are implicated and triggered by different types of claims. The um, types of insurance policies, if an insured is lucky enough to have them, to respond to a due process petition challenging an individualized education plan typically is a more limited form of coverage than what you get defending your typical civil rights case. So the most important thing from the perspective of the insured and risk management generally is to make sure you have coverage which would take care of not only the type of relief sought but also the causes of action pled. So, for example, if somebody goes straight to uh, federal court under the Rehabilitation Act, looking for damages and other equitable relief, some of which he or she could get under the IDEA, you're going to want to make a motion to throw it out for failure to exhaust administrative remedies. If they're still within time to pursue their administrative remedies and they do file a new due process petition, you want to make sure that there's coverage for that, because if there isn't, you could be um, winning a battle to lose the war and racking up a massive defense bill on a form of claim that isn't covered, sometimes it might be better to just fight it out in federal court or state court and let the clock run down on what would have been an opportunity to file the action below. So basically, 
your business administrator is going to want to have uh, his or her finger on the pulse of all the various coverages available and be sure to submit to all the carriers who could be potentially involved so you don't have any type of uh, late notification defenses from the insurers. And Eric, what do insurers and policyholders need to do when confronting an exhaustion defense? When you're looking at a potential exhaustion defense, you want to know the entire history of the case between the uh, student and the student's family and the school district that you're dealing with. You want to know about prior claims because very frequently these claims made on behalf of students include a list of grievances that go back many years. There may be prior policies triggered. There may be different policies triggered. And you want to make sure that all of the um, conditions for reporting claims under those policies are being satisfied. And if you're lucky enough to have two or more carriers involved, you want to get them all to the table quickly to come up with a game plan to maximize your defenses in whatever forum you're going to end up in, whether it's in the federal or state court where it started out or if it's in what we would have in Jersey would be the Office of Administrative Law or before a hearing officer in another case. If there's coverage for that, you want it in place and you want to make sure that your client is going to be fully defended and indemnified to the maximum extent of those policies. You'd hate to hang all your hopes on one policy, then to succeed with an exhaustion defense to find yourself before a new tribunal with a carrier saying, wait a minute, we don't defend claims there, and it's too late for you to notify the carrier that provides coverage for that type of claim because you've known about this for six months and you didn't let them know. So the most important thing when you've got a civil rights claim that might have some educational implications and a potential exhaustion defense is get all your policies together, make sure all the carriers are getting noticed, and make sure that your plan of attack is tailored to the types of coverage available to make sure that you're not going to be fighting your way into a court where you have no coverage for the claim. Eric and Caitlin, thank you both for joining us today. Thank you, John. Thank you. You've just listened to attorneys Eric Harrison and Caitlin Lundquist from the law firm of Methessel and Werbel in Edison, New Jersey. Special thanks to our producer, Brian Cohen. And thank you all for joining us for the Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, visit podcast.insuranceattorneysearch.com or go to online directories such as iTunes or Google or Yahoo's podcast directory. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ambest.com. I'm John Zuba, and now this message. Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is used by decision makers at insurance companies responsible for selecting legal counsel and representation. The printed directory is distributed annually to insurance companies, non-insurance companies, third-party administrators, and corporate counsel around the world, and the online edition is accessible throughout the year. Your listing in Best's directory of recommended insurance attorneys is the most effective way to ensure that thousands of potential clients have access to your outstanding credentials. Here's why you should be listed in the number one insurance attorney reference. Your firm's credentials will be listed in our comprehensive reference guide, which is made available to thousands of insurance professionals globally, both in print and online. AMBES listees are recognized as the most qualified in their field to represent the unique needs of insurance companies. Key decision makers rely on the directory to take the guesswork out of their selection process. They know that only the best are listed, those firms with a proven track record of excellence who are recommended by their insurance industry clients. And remember, one low rate guarantees year 
year-long visibility for your firm. We invite you to use our web application process to apply for a listing today. With our reasonable rates and broad exposure, there's no more effective way to get the attention of the insurance industry. For more information about Best's Directory of Recommended Insurance Attorneys, visit www.insuranceattorneysearch.com. 